Good morning. It is good to be back in our own house of worship. Amen. Even though I went in the kids' building, I smelled popcorn, and it reminded me of the theater last week, but we are in our own house. And the first year when I came here, we had one service. We dis- the kids worship. We dismissed them like Jeff did today. It feels like we're, we've gone backwards and only to grow forward again, you know, uh, because we, we dismissed the kids, so we had more space. Then we went to two services. Now we got one service. Dismissing the kids. I saw Scott, you tried to sneak out with the kids, but you know, you're too old. But I'm just glad we've got everybody together and we can worship together. I'm excited to finish out the book of Galatians. We're going to preach today on Galatians and then next week. And then we'll be starting a new series on heaven, which uh, is going to be great encouragement for all of us to see what the Bible has to say about that in our future. Now, I like to give at the very beginning. Um, many times, the big idea for the message that you walk away with. Today, it's in the title of the message, The Duel. A duel is two people going at it to try to win, beat, kill, destroy, uh, whatever the context is. And we know lots of great duels um, through time. I'm sure if I were to throw some names out, you could think about the opposite, right? I mean, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader, right? I mean, that's an epic one for me growing up. I'm going to throw some of these out there. I want you just to, if you, if you know it, you could say it. This is the duel. I'll give you one half the duel. You give me the other. Ready? Batman. No. Batman doesn't fight Robin. The Joker. God, good. See, you got to wake you up here. Uh, Grant versus... Yeah, that's some history. That was a real one, right? Civil War. Ali versus Frazier. Okay, Steve's getting them all right here. You know, uh, Magic versus Bird. Yeah, that's right. Some people might say another name. Ford versus, yeah, they just made a movie about that, right? Pepsi versus, okay, you guys all got the food one right. Let's try the Bible, okay? Let's see if you know the, any Bible ones, right? I'm going to give you a softball right off the bat. David versus? Okay, everyone got that. That was good. Okay, how about this one? Michael versus? Satan. Or you could say Lucifer. You know, the book of Jude talks about how they fought over the body of Moses, right? A duel went on. Moses versus? Pharaoh, right? That was mostly verbal and then letting God do the work, right? Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. We called fire down out of heaven, right? They had a duel, a contest where they built the altar and remember this? Okay, okay. Some of you need to go back over to Sunday school. You know, Scott, there you go. Uh, Okay, Samson versus I knew someone was going to say Delilah. <laughs> and all the spouses went, hey. Philistines. I mean, the whole, you know, his, he's always dueling with the Philistines. Jawbone of the donkey, remember? Okay, last one. I saved a hard one. See if you can get this one. Mordecai versus Haman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a good, that was a duel. 
Yeah, right, exactly. But now I'm, I'm putting it in your mind here because Paul is going to deal with perhaps the greatest duel that has ever existed with mankind. And I'm going to say that because, first of all, I googled longest wars ever. Do you know what the longest war ever is? Over 700 years, it's the Spanish Reconquista. You had um, the, the Moor army, Islam came across where Gibraltar is, landed, and started taking over Europe. And in, it, and in 700 years, it was fighting until they settled that, right? So that's, that's a long war, but longer than that is the duel that Paul's going to talk about right now. Okay, And it's the Spirit of God versus our sin nature. The Spirit of God versus our sin nature. A real duel that's going to happen in here. And I say perhaps the greatest duel because its scope historically is old as man. The struggling with the cho- choice to, to follow God or to follow our nature Longest war, 780 years, but this one has gone on. It's as old as man. It's reached the Reconquista. That was local, globally, as Europe and North Africa. This is personal, and it's every man and woman that's ever lived has had to face this duel. And its impact is eternal. It's not just one era of history, one decade or millennia or hundreds of millennia, but this is the scope of human history and its impact is eternal. This duel, the Spirit of God versus our sin nature. Now, when I read this section and said, how am I going to preach this? What stood out to me was the number of times the two characters, if I say it that way, that are going to fight, that are going to duel, were mentioned in this passage. The word flesh and the word spirit, they're said over and over again in this section. Now let me read it to you, and I'm going to break it down, but notice the number of times the two dueling entities are, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There it is in the first verse, spirit and flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus 
have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Father, I just pray as we break this passage down, you'll help us understand Paul's drive, what it is he wants us to know, how he wants to encourage and exhort us and apply it to our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the first point is this, the great opposition inside us, this great duel. It's eternal. In the first few verses, he gives it to us, and we have the combatants. Now, I put up here, can you go back a slide? Did you get my, um, my Rocky? Is it there? No, there's David and Goliath. Oh, wait, there you go. Now, you know, this is a famous movie, you know, and I thought if we're going to talk about a fight, a duel, many, many of us know this. Now, you know, in a, in a, in a boxing match, <clears throat> before it starts, they introduce the two that are going to fight. You know, like in the blue corner we have, and then they tell all about that fighter. In the red corner we have, and then they tell all about that fighter, right? And they've always got cool names, you know, the master of disaster, the king of steam, right? And as we walk through this right now, Paul's giving us the combatants, and we're going to learn a little bit about each one. And that means as we go through this, I'm going to take the words he's using and make sure you understand the descriptions of each so that you have a good understanding of application. Because as we go through this, you may hear what he's saying and go, that's me. Or you may hear what he's saying we should be. He says, that's what I want. And so we're going to break it down that way. And he begins by giving us the two combatants. Okay? And here they are. The first one, the flesh. Which as I read through that, you heard me say it five different times. Uh, he uses that word. Now this word, <clears throat> flesh, because you might say sin or desire, but, but the actual fighter, like up there, there was Rocky and, and Clubber Lang, Mr. T, right? It's flesh. It's this right here. It's not something up there like sin. No, it's the actual combatant is you. It's the flesh. And the word that he uses here, epituthumia, means over-desire, to, to gratify the flesh. And it's interesting that he chooses that word because it's not desiring bad things. It's over-desiring good things. Something like love. I, I over-desire that. I'm driven towards that. Without it, I feel incomplete. Sex. God made that. You can over-desire that. That's what he's talking about. Money. It's a tool. But you can over-desire that and greed comes out. And so, Paul's going to say, it's, the problem is we take something and desire it too much. We push God aside and this becomes the thing that we desire the most. But we see here that the flesh is the first fighter in the match, if I could say that. And as I was studying this, 
I love how one author broke down how the flesh and gratifying it works. There's a motivational system. It's almost like you could say, well, how does Rocky fight versus how does Clubber Lang fight? One is a southpaw. They hit left-handed. One is, right, you're talking about the, the, the way in which it works. And over-desiring, gratifying the flesh, Paul Paul gives us how it works. There's this motivational system within us. We over-desire something, and this is how it works. I'll give you three steps. Number one, we focus on something that's beautiful, that's good, that is desired, and we begin to focus on that as if it is a goal for us. Here's God, here's what I might desire, and I begin to focus on that, the thing that I desire. That focus then generates perceived needs. I need it, and now I'm beginning to think about how I need that. I'm dwelling on it. I'm thinking about it. It's in my mind. So we, we focus on something beautiful, desired. We begin to generate within us perceived needs because it's beautiful, I need it. And now we begin to manufacture, number three, ways to get it, drives to attain that thing. We start to think about the pathways for how we can get it. It's a motivational system within us. We over-desire something, perceived that we need it, and begin to create the ways and pathways to attain it. That's the flesh and the attempts to gratify it. Now, on the other side of this fight, the spirit, which, you know, I I thought about kind of going over here and just don't forget the fact that the spirit is the third person of the Trinity, omnipotent, all-knowing, possessing all the attributes that God has. There's actually no comparison No flesh could ever be uh, greater than the attributes of the Spirit. But yet the Spirit has come in and is dwelling within us. Almost like an invader that has come in and they're in a territory. And now we're perceiving what the threat is in that territory. Because now it's our domain. We're living in there. The Spirit has come into us to live within us. And... The opposition is the desires of our flesh to gratify things that go against the Spirit of God, the holiness of God. And it's interesting that the way that Paul characterizes our interaction is walking. Walking with the Spirit. You're either in step which is a word he used earlier in the book of Galatians, where Paul looked at Peter and he wasn't doing something he should be doing. And he said, you are not in step with the gospel. And there's a way in which when I begin to over-desire and put God over here, I'm not walking with the Spirit. I'm walking by the flesh then. I'm being led away from walking with the Spirit to be influenced and to yield 
to the Spirit within us. These are the two combatants, and there's a conflict that's going to be between them. Because Paul uses the word against. Walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Now, think about that. He's saying, just like these two fighters are going to come in and it's going to be a clash, they oppose each other. Because walking by the flesh, we're, we're, we're placing God. We've, we perceive something to be beautiful, and we chase after that and say, God, I'm not going to walk by the Spirit towards you. This is replacing you. And they're in opposition. The Spirit's saying, walk this way. And we're saying, but I want to go this way. My flesh wants to go this And they're in opposition, he says, to each other. And like you have desire, the Holy Spirit has desire for you to walk in step with the Father. Now, the consequence here, because they can't, you can't, coexist. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other. So while there is this presence of both of them being there, the long-term net effect of this opposition, this war, this fight within us, it has long-term consequences, which as we walk through this, he's going to unfold a little bit. But they're not meant to coexist if you're a believer in Christ, the Spirit of God over time should pull you away from walking and gratifying the flesh to walking with the Spirit. That is a sign of Christian maturity and that you are a believer in Christ. To cut the Spirit off and to say, I'm not going to anymore, says something about you internally. And this is the consequence in this passage he lays out. He says this will keep you from doing what you want. Because he says in verse 17, they're, they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now that means this. Even though, and if you're a Christian in here and you're listening to this, you go, you know, there are things of my flesh. There is this fight. There's this battle do you know one of the things Paul's saying here is that if you are a Christian, deep down inside, you want to follow the Spirit. You want to walk with the Spirit. You want to. It's just this fight of learning how to put aside, renewing your mind. But deep down inside, we want to follow. We want to walk. If you really are a believer in Christ, you want to. He says, but the opposition will keep you from being able to do it. The existence of that opposition, the fight that's going on, it will keep you from doing the thing that deep down inside you're really made for and long for. Fellowship with God, walking alongside Him. Like Adam in the garden before he sinned, walking face to face with God. That's what you're made for. That's what you long for. Deep down inside, but th this war, this fight, this duel, Paul says right here, it will keep you from being able to do that. So, as one writer said, the spirit 
longs to conform us to Christ. Ultimately, this is what the Christian wants to do. Now, we're seeing this great opposition inside us. Now, let's talk about each one of these fighters, the blue corner and the red corner, before the fight begins. He's going to give us what it is, right? Over here, you might say, they hail from this part of the world and they've had this many fights and this many wins and they stand at, you know, 6'2 and this many pounds and, you know, that's how they talk, you know, right before a fight. And that's what you're getting right now. You're going to get it. And the first one is the flesh. And the word for that is sarks. The sarks. So we have the sarks in the red corner over here and he's going to give us the description of it. And actually the way he describes it is attitudes. Attitudes. And he's going to walk through them. And there's four categories, I could say, of each one. And the first one is sexuality. In verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives us the first category of sexuality with the first three words. Which are sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Now this first one, sexual immorality, the Greek word is pornea, which when I say that everyone, you know, something comes to mind. We have something in our culture called pornography. And here's the word, pornea. It's sexual immorality. Now Paul's use of the word here is sex between unmarried people. God created sex its place is to be in marriage. It is, its function is to bind, to bond husband and wife together. When we use it outside of God's design, you can strip it of its God-given uh, potential. Like super glue to take the man and the woman and to bind them together. Sex can become something that loses the power to do that. But here he's saying, um, this is the first one, that sex between unmarried people. These are the works of the flesh. Remember that. The second one, my translation uses the word impurity, akatharsia, which means unnatural sexual practices. And this word actually, the Greek word which I just said to you, is the word from which we get uh, homosexuality. But it's not specifically limiting it to that here. It's any type of unnatural sexual practices. In other words, God made sex, supposed to be between man and a woman in marriage. Any type of sex out, outside of that can be between same genders, can be bestiality, can be uh, there's a lot there you could put in, but he's given you the second category, which he says is impurity. Sexual immorality, there's a type of sex that's impure. And the last one, debauchery, uh, which in the translation I was reading just uses the word sensuality. And what this word alludes to is just uncontrolled sexual um, you're driven and 
you have no self-control in your life when it comes to sex. And so there's a place where sensuality may have an appropriate meaning, but there's another uh, place where it's walking by the flesh. It's over-desiring and pulling us away from walking with the Spirit. We're driven over-desiring too much in that direction. Now, see, those three fit together in the category of sexuality. The next two words is the area of religion. In verse 20, he says, idolatry and sorcery. He uses them together back to back. I was looking at these, I mean, idolatry, the Greek word almost sounds like idolatry, idolatria. But being used with the next word, which is sorcery, which, you know, in our English word, we look at that and go, what are you saying? That, uh, so... Wizards can't be in heaven, you know, so Gandalf doesn't make it, you know. Uh, Sorcerers, uh, the word, this is interesting actually, the word is pharmakia, which, you know, what does that sound like? But (laughs) pharmakia, and it actually can be translated witchcraft. And here's what Paul is doing. By idolatry and witchcraft or sorcery together, he is pointing you towards a category of the occult, and pagan religious religious practices. The pairing of these two words together specifies that Paul is referring to the very specific thing of the occult, which would be the worship of demons, demonic entities, Satan, or um, pagan practices outside of the church. And so that's the second category, okay? attitudes of the sarks, of the flesh. And then these next eight words, you say, Pastor, we're getting a lot here. Let me move through them, but I told you I I don't want to skip over them. The heart of the passage are all these words. The first four words are descriptive of how the flesh destroys relationships. The first one is selfish ambition. And this is namely competitiveness, to a degree that is destructive, self-seeking motivation. You have an ambition in you that will run people over, that will step on and stop on them to get things done and doesn't take into consideration the other person. It's an ambition that is ungodly, an ambition that is driven by human desire. And he says this, this is an attitude of the flesh. Envy. Envy is coveting, wanting, desiring what others have. This could fill a, a huge scope of things from material possessions to mental faculties. I wish I was as smart as them to physical features. I wish I was athletic or as good looking as them. It can be any of these things. It's looking at another person. I wish I had a, a job like them. I wish I had a life like them. I wish I could take vacations like them. I live at the bottom of the tower. I wish I was at the penthouse. It's always looking at others and feeling like you don't, something's happened in this world that makes it to where I don't get those things. It's, uh, it's drive, driving within us a desire to want what other people have. 
It's a coveting of what other people have. Jealousy. Now this is the zeal and the energy that comes from having a hungry ego. You ever met someone that's got a big ego? They've got a huge ego. Well, jealousy is being driven by the ambition that you have, the belief that you have, and it pushes you into action. Hatred, hostility, an adversarial attitude. This is, hatred here is, is you just look at the other person and you have disdain for them. There's a hostile feeling within you. The way that you interact is adversarial. These four go together as attitudes. The next four are the outfalling. If you have these attitudes, this is often what you're going to see in people or groups of people. Again, all of these destroy relationships. The fifth one here in his list is discord. It's being argumentative, seeking to pick fights. Have you ever known someone who's always looking to fight? They got something to prove. They've always got a point to make. Every time you say something, they can push right back. You know, I've told this story before, but there's a professor at USC who, Dallas Willard was his name, Christian man, and he tell, a story is told about how the guy that told the story went to his class, sat down to watch it. He caught the end of it, actually, and he said this person stood up and just went off on Christianity and God, and he said, I can't wait to see what Dallas is going to say because he could totally destroy everything this guy's saying. He could pick him apart. And when we think about our modern culture, that's kind of where we live. The era of internet debates, right? Of social media, I'm going to zing you. And here it was, Dallas Willard finished the class by letting the person say everything they could say about what they wanted on that topic. And then he said, that is really interesting. We'll have to come back to that. And then he closed the class. And the guy went up and said, I can't believe that. You know what that guy was saying was crazy. You could have totally destroyed that. What were you doing? And Dallas said, I was practicing the discipline of not always having to say the last word. And I remember when I heard that story, I thought, I didn't know that was a discipline. I didn't even know that existed. The discipline of not having to say the last word. I hated sharing that story with my wife. Because you can always take me back to that. You don't always have to have the last word. But... These kind of go along with that in our modern culture. Think about how much these things fit with our modern culture. The the desires of the flesh then. Uh, Discord, being argumentative. Fits of rage, which is outbursts of anger. Where you're having that argument and it just drives you escalating upward where it's you're going to get your point across and it's now you're just angry about it. And then he takes us to dissensions. The more hardened we become 
in our ambitions, in our pride, our hungry egos, our hostility. We're looking to prove a point. We're being argumentative. We burst out in angers. We create within community dissension, which is divisions between people and long-standing would be factions, the last thing he gives there, which are permanent parties that are at war, warring groups. So you know it's not a healthy church if within the church this is what we find, factions, divisions, argumentation, especially if they're long-standing and seem to be at war with each other about their opinions. That is not walking by the Spirit. That is being led by the flesh. Now, notice what I said was, these things destroy relationships. And this is Paul's warning that he gives. Paul gives us this list. Verse 21, envy, drunkenness. Oh, wait, we have one more. Let me not skip the last one. Substance abuse, the last one, uh, because he uses uh, drunkenness and then the word orgies. Now, orgies may have a, a meaning that is sexual, but here it's paired with drunkenness because what he's talking about is a lack of self control in the flesh in an addiction to pleasure creating substances. Um, it's, it develops a behavior in us to go back again and again, and give ourselves without control to, and he uses the word drunkenness, but it could be other types of substances. Drugs, marijuana, it doesn't matter if it's legal or not. What matters is control, self-control. And then he gives us the warning which is this, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you might be sitting there, oh my goodness, I've done that. Now I can't inherit the kingdom of God. But what he's talking about there is those who, instead of walking by the Spirit, have given themselves over to the flesh and they practice it without any battle in their life. Because when you're an unbeliever, much of these things that I've said that Paul has given us on the list, some of it, a lot of it may be in your life. You might have said as I read that from Paul's list, that's me. I'm argumentative. That's me. I have a big ego. That's me. I like to drink. That's me. I mean, there's a lot on the list. But if you are a person who says, you know what, I'm going to just allow it to be in my life and practice it. So you go throughout your entire life staying a person who has a big ego and, and argues with people. Staying as a person who <clears throat> is in a relationship that in those first three, that first category... Sex isn't right in your life. There's something about your life that's outside of God's design. Any of that list. He's saying you don't inherit the kingdom of God. And what he means by that is that those who are 
true children of God, they will, over time, put the flesh away and begin to walk by the Spirit. You are giving yourself over to being led by the Spirit. And most of us in here, you're going to say, there's a, there's a little bit of both in my life, Pastor. You know, it's like, I want to, like you said, I desire to be led by the Spirit, but sometimes I find myself giving in to the flesh. I'm going to tell you, one of the biggest revelations in my own life as a Christian was I remember one day coming to this. There's a fight inside of me. Yes, some of what's on that list is in my life, but I see it and I make the notation in my mind that can't be there. And I fight against it. And I come over here and I give myself to the Spirit. And I walk by the Spirit. And I'm led by the Spirit. But then there's times I get pulled over and I give in to the flesh. If there's no fight, then you need to hear Paul's warning there. Because he's saying the people who practice, the word practice there, it it means a repeated action going forward in your life. A repeated action again and again and again, and there's no change. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's warning you about that so that now you can make the notation here and say, I need to fight against these things. If I saw it on his list and it's in my life, I need to fight. I need to fight against that so that it's not there. And when you fight against the flesh, you're beginning to walk by the Spirit. You're beginning to put it here and walk over here. Now, I guess the biggest warning, there's Paul's warning, the warning that I would give is to ask you, is there complacency? That's the danger. Complacency means, you know, I'm not just really doing anything about it. That's complacency. That's the problem. That's what Paul's warning is there. The warning is there for the Christians in the room who are complacent. So, as one author said, for someone continually to indulge the sinful nature without battling against it is to show that the Son has not redeemed them and that the Spirit has not renewed them. Paul is not looking to undermine Christian assurance here, but he is aiming to banish complacency. Now, I'm going to take you to the last point which is the better side of the list. It's the fruits of the Spirit. And I grew up as a kid memorizing this love, joy, peace, right? But I'm just going to pause at each word and say a little something about each one because the, the second part of the list is really what we want, right? Love. <clears throat> love. And the word here is agape. It's a selfless love. It's putting the other person first. Um, so there's the list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now go to my next slide as we walk through these. Love is others-oriented. If you're a person who tries to make people orbit around you, that is the wrong kind of love. In your relationship, you're arguing for what you want. Why did you do that? Why did you do it that way? I want this. Well, if we're not going to do it my way... Well, you're showing that the kind of love that you have is not a biblical kind of love. It's not a love shaped by the Spirit of God. It's a worldly love. 
And it's a type of love that says, I'm going to put myself first, and then whatever I, 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 I give towards you, it's because I'm getting something back that I like. It makes me feel good. It can be very contractual, because then if that stops, maybe the love my way stops, and this relationship is over. But that's not God's love. God's love is an unconditional love. It's not others-oriented type of love. It puts others first. Now, in each one of these, there's a counterfeit to it, something that's fake, right? And the fake version of this is selfish, selfish affection. So when you're attracted to someone and you treat them well because of how they make you feel about yourself, that's not the kind of love that's led by the Spirit. Joy. <clears throat> Joy is to delight in God. If God is your one <clears throat> true delight, anything can happen in this life and it's not stolen from you. But we delight in a lot of other things, don't we? <clears throat> We're supposed to just delight in the beauty and the worth of who He is. But the opposite of this, see the counterfeit, right, can be despair. Something that you really love is gone, now you're going to be despair. There's a hopelessness in you. When is the power coming back on? I'm in despair. Just sliding that in there, you know. Its counterfeit is going to be elation that is based on experiencing blessing. You're joyful because of how you're feeling in the situation. Maybe it's causing a mood swing within you based upon the circumstance. Something great has happened. Now I have joy. That's not the kind of joy he's talking about here. The joy he's talking about here is centered on who God is, his worth. Now, this is an interesting side point. The Greek word here for joy is charis, which we get charismatic from and this can be tied into worship too sometimes we like charismatic worship just because of how it makes us feel oh i was just oh man and we don't ever focus on the kind of joy that he's talking about here is on who god is the center of worship is not you and how you feel the center of worship is who is God and what has he done for me? Okay, just a side note on that. But the next word he has is peace. Peace. Now, interesting, the Greek word for this is Irene, which I was looking for the Ashiros. I don't see them. Are the Ashiros here? Uh, Irene, Ashiro, just, you know, peace. Uh, I thought of her as I was doing this, but this meeting here is confidence and rest in the wisdom of and control of God. No matter what happens, I know God's in control, therefore I can have peace. I just got the doctor's report. It doesn't look good. Peace. God's in control. This is the picture is the disciples in the boat with Christ, and there's a storm, right? And they're freaking out, bailing water, and they're looking at him, and he's like asleep, you know, in the front of the boat. They're like, What's wrong with him? Don't you see what's about to happen? We're going down. And there's a peace, right? Because he's God. If you really know 
who He is, there'll be a peace in your life no matter the circumstances, okay? Um, Patience. Patience is the ability to face trouble without blowing up or hitting out. See, if you have a joy in who God is and you have a peace because you know He's in control, then you can be patient on His timing. If you're impatient, it says something about where your joy really lies. The opposite of this, obviously, it can be uh, resentment toward God and others. You're impatient. It's not happening in your timeline. You can have a lack of caring about because it's not fitting within your timeline. But patience is being able to face trouble without uh, blowing up. Kindness. Kindness is an ability. I love the definition of this one. Kindness. See, when you, when you, if I say, what does kindness mean? You probably say to me, oh, they're really nice. You know, they're just so sweet, right? And there could be an aspect of that here, but here's what Paul means by this. An ability to serve others practically in a way which makes me vulnerable. Now, just think about that. First of all, it's others-oriented. Kindness is others-oriented. I'm going to serve someone else, but I serve them in a way like there's not a limit and I can be vulnerable to you to an extent that I'm going to serve you in whatever way that you need. To be unkind to say, hey, there's a limit here. You know what? I'm going to be nice to you, like, you, like I said at the beginning. I'm going to be sweet to you, but there's a limit here. Okay, I'm not opening myself up that much, but biblical kindness is, is to be able to absorb and be vulnerable while you're serving them and reaching out to them. Now, the opposite of this, see, see is, is you're unable to rejoice at somebody else's joy. Uh, you could maybe be manipulative. So you're being nice because you really want something back. You're doing good for others, maybe because you want to congratulate yourself. You know, there's ways to be kind that are fake. They're not godly kindness. And then goodness. Goodness, this is an interesting definition. It really means integrity. Integrity. Being the same person in every situation. Not a hypocrite. Not a phony. Interesting. They're a good person. What does that mean? That means in every situation, they're the same. All of these attributes, they're there. Joy, peace, okay? Faith, loyalty, courage to be utterly reliable and true to your word. You're not opportunistic. This is what faithfulness means. Gentleness is humility. Some of your translations might use the word humility. The opposite of this would to feel superior, to be self-absorbed. And lastly, self-control, which is to pursue 
what's important over something that feels urgent, to not be impulsive. Now, um, these are the fruits of the Spirit. And I told you I was going to walk through and give you a little something on each one because it's the heart of the message. But really, here's where I think it gets really good because we're talking about Christian maturity. We're talking about are you following the flesh or are you walking by the Spirit? And someone might be sitting there and, you, and you, know, you heard one of those and you go, well, that one's me. I got that one. You know, I may not have you know, a couple of those you said, but I, I'm really, really good at that one. And what, what, you, what you mean by that is I've got like, like it's a fruit basket, right? And three or four of the fruit are like really small and underdeveloped, you know, or, you know, or maybe you're not good at the rotten, but there's one really nice piece of fruit. You say, at least I got one piece, you know. So I want to give you this thought about kind of fruit from our world and how it actually applies to fruits of the Spirit. Okay, really quickly, because I'm looking at our time. But number one is fruit grows slowly, not quickly, not quickly. So remember that. All those things I said, you're not going to master them quickly. It's going to be something that grows in you. My wife, so sad, that typhoon knocked down the avocado tree. We never got an avocado out of it. Seven years. You know, it takes so long to grow an avocado. Some of her other stuff she got fruit from. But I want you to remember, fruit grows slowly. And also fruit is, get this, the fruit is the sign of life within you. If you're yielding to the Spirit, the fruit, you'll see it on the outside. What's alive is on the inside producing the fruit. It's not the other way around. It's not backwards. You can't look at and say, I've got this fruit, it means I'm alive. Because, as I already said, some of the fruit can be fake. Some of the fruit can be counterfeit. I'm being loving because I want to get something back out of you. So to get the fruit right, you've got to go inside first and grapple with the Spirit of God within you. Also, I will just tell you, fruit will grow. It, the propensity for growth is always inside of the seed. You plant it, it's going to grow. Water it, it's going to grow. It will grow. If you're a child of God, everything I'm saying to you will grow in you in life. Slowly, but it will. And the last one is that fruit grows up together. It grows up together. That's what I meant by you can't look at a fruit basket and say, well, here's all the fruit, love, joy, peace, kindness. I got, you know, almost all of them are really small, underdeveloped, but I got one really good one. No. The way he writes this and the way he uses the words mean that they all grow together proportionately. You will never have one of these fruits of the Spirit and say, I've mastered love, but I'm really poor at patience. No. That means you, whatever your idea of love is, you got it wrong. Because of love, if you've mastered love, you will be patient. Because you're putting the other person first. You see, they're connected that way. And I, and, and I want to point that out. You cannot, you cannot say, I got some of those fruit. I'm just not going to work on those. 
it says something about your maturity. It grows together proportionately as you mature. Now, <clears throat> I just, I don't have time for a lot of this. I just, I was going to point out, you know, in the Bible, you've got Saul, you've got Judas. There's examples of people that you saw on the outside, whatever was there, but they didn't have real fruit in their life. And we got to go inside because I think one of the biggest mistakes we make as Christians is we see something in a person that's like a talent or a gift, and we confuse that with spiritual maturity. Don't make a mistake. Christian maturity is measured by the fruits of the Spirit. I'm a pastor. You might see me preach and go, they got to be, oh, I mean, you got all those fruits of the Spirit, you know. Christian maturity isn't how well I could take God's Word and preach it. Christian maturity is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What do you see in me by that standard? Don't make the mistake of looking at a person and confusing a talent or a spiritual gift. Oh, they just sing so wonderful and they lead worship. Oh, they just have a servant's heart. They came out and, and helped the campus this way. Christian maturity is measured one way. It's the fruits of the Spirit because it deals with giving yourself over to God. The Spirit of God lives in you. And what did he say? There's a war. There's a fight. There's a duel. There's opposition within you. And you're either going this way or you're going that way. And Christian maturity is not gratifying the flesh. Christian maturity is yielding to the Spirit, and you see those fruits there. Now, lastly, the lasting conclusion, I want you to read the very end here. It says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And I just want to land all this by pointing out, because we kind of live in a culture where I know the culture is very Catholic, and sometimes what comes into our understanding of all this is the idea of Lent, where it's like we're going to give up something for a while. That's not what pleases God. What pleases God is to put to death the flesh. Because you could come over here and say, I'm going to give up something for a month, but then the flesh is alive and well in you. Maybe that one, you didn't eat something for a while, but as you come over here and you're still living by the flesh. And Paul closes it out by saying, you have to put to death the flesh. If you're a Christian, you have crucified the flesh. And there's so much content in the New Testament about that. One of the ways, this was something I did. John Piper has this really great section where he talks about this. It's called Killing Sin. You can look it up on the internet and find it. I wrote it down in my Bible. Killing sin. Crucifying the flesh. He's got more. I put 13 down. And sometimes I open up to the back right here and it reminds me about the battle that's inside of me to put to death the flesh. And there's just really great ones. Things he said. I'm going to give you one. He said this, it comes out of Romans 8, 13. He says, cultivate enmity with sin. You don't kill friends, you kill enemies. 
And if he's saying to crucify the flesh, there's something inside of you that's an enemy. There's something that you need to put to death. You don't put to death, friends. And you need to think about, you need to ponder the fact of how sin killed your best friend, Jesus Christ. It dishonors your father and it aims to destroy you forever. Develop more hatred for sin. And we really need that in our culture today. If you want an exercise this week, if you're in a small group and you're a small group leader, go to John Piper's Killing Sin. Look through it. Talk about it. What is there that you can grab to put down where you can remind yourself regularly what Paul is saying? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this passage. And we took the time to look at all these words and what they mean, what it means to walk by the flesh. And we took the time, Lord, to look at the fruits of the Spirit, what they mean, what does patience really mean, what does love really mean, to to be others-oriented. Help us to see and recognize fake fruits of the Spirit, a love that is really about you and not the other person. Help us to see fake fruit. Help us to to understand that all of these fruits should be growing up proportionally the same measure within us so that we can't look at one of them and say, I don't need to work on patience because I'm, I'm loving, because I'm, and you have another fruit that you think you have, but they're all interconnected. Lord, we need to be a community that keeps each other accountable. And as Paul said at the end there, to crucify the flesh, to put to death the flesh, to not let it live within us, the over-desiring of things that are going to be opposed to the Spirit leading us to you. May we see it. May our spouses help us see it. May our parents help us see it in our kids. May our community, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ see it and speak to one another to protect us, to encourage us, so that we can be a community that honors you, that has great fruits of the Spirit. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and finish as we worship together.